This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. I am Jason Kong with the pleasure of being alongside our hosts, Mary Lucas and Sam Peterson, both with Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you today? Doing well. Happy weekend. That's right. Sam, how are you? I'm doing great. Happy weekend as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's get the party started here. Well, we're going to talk about something that I think uh, a lot of people have questions about, and that's how to determine what is no- normal aging, what might fall in that category, and what might fall in the category of dementia, something that uh, many people can... Uh, sympathize and empathize with being worried about and to have a discussion about that we've got Mary uh, we've got Melanie Bunn on the line she's a nurse and dementia training consultant with Dementia Alliance North Carolina Melanie thank you so much for joining us today it's wonderful to be here Melanie I'm so glad we have you today to talk about this topic Um, we've you know, been looking at this a little bit with my family. Uh, my grandmother's 92, and you know, we're always worried is she just slowing down, or maybe her longer pause is just her trying to collect her thoughts, or you know, could it be dementia? It's always something you know we're worried about. So, you know, I know folks maybe feel like they're slowing down when they're thinking lately, especially with all the COVID stress we have. So, when should someone be worried, and what should someone expect to start seeing speed kind of slowing down? Yeah, that's a really great question, and it's a question some of the most brilliant minds in the world are are working on, and Mm -hmm. um, part of the comfort is the most brilliant mind in the world to think about your specific situation is you, and the reason for that is you are the person who really knows what is normal for this person. So that's where we start is how is this person lived his or her life? What is their, how have they made decisions? What's their memory been like? What's their sense of direction been like? So when we start with what's usual, normal for that person, and you begin to notice changes, that's where you start to pay attention, get more information, really look specifically at how is this person I know different now than they used to be. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. I think during COVID, you know, stress for me changes how I react, and it definitely, definitely has. Been, <laughs> I've got that COVID fatigue setting yes. in, and I'm like, oh, am I getting older, or is this stress? Um, so, what are some other things that may fall into the aging changes versus dementia? So that is, um, if I can, if I can address the COVID, right? Um, just just a moment. That I'd really appreciate that. Because COVID is really changing everything about our lives. It's, mm-hmm. it's changing our social interactions, but it's also con- it's also changing how much physical work we're doing. So how much activity and exercise are we doing? It's changing how much sleep are we getting, whether because you know we're more sedentary or because we're more worried. So it's changing our function in our lives, and all of that impacts brain function. Mm-hmm. So teasing out what is aging, what is the situation of COVID. And, and what is dementia makes a complex situation even more complex. What I really look at is for 
An aging change is something that happens across lifetimes. So you kind of take a deep breath and, and let it go. Um, you kind of peak at age 25 for speed. Now, hear the end of that sentence, for speed. <laughs> so not for smart, for speed. So your fast is at age 25. So if you kind of think back to when the person was 25, things change from then forward. But it's kind of slowly and it's progressing across the person's lifetime. And it's a change of quality. So how well can somebody do something or how fast can somebody do something or how many tools or resources does it take to do it? Those kinds of things change and happen to everybody. So Mm -hmm. those are the aging associated changes. So it might be something like um, becoming needing a little bit more help with memory. So I, I ask a family member to remind me of something. I can still do it, but I need a little bit of support or help. Or people who usually have a wonderful sense of direction um, needing to make sure they pay more attention or they look more carefully. Or someone who um, has always um, managed their checkbook um, completely independently and done that fine. Um, Now it's taking a little bit longer. They can still do it. It takes a little bit longer to figure out the mistakes. It just, it's a, the quality of the speak might be different, but they can still do things. Mm-hmm. Wow, 25? <laughs> I, said, I said fastest. I didn't say smartest. Okay. Y'all always do that. You hear 25, and nobody hears anything after that. So thank you for letting me say that a couple of times. Absolutely. So on the flip side, uh, what are some dementia changes, characteristics? What are characteristics of that look like? Yeah, so if you take those aging changes and you tweak them a bit, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't happen throughout your lifetime. Dementia is a process that happens when you are fully adult. So it happens not as a young child or from birth. It's something that is like happens once you're a grown-up. And it becomes an issue of not just quality and speed. It becomes an issue of the person can't compensate and adapt. So I've got an appointment coming up, and I have it on my calendar. Um, They call me the night before and remind me. My daughter calls me on the way to pick me up. And when she gets there, I say, what are we doing? So it's not an issue Mm -hmm. of how much practice it takes to get the information in, it's that I can't get new information in. So it's that those those processes, those abilities don't work anymore. And the other thing that's really, you know, if there's anything that's comforting about dementia, it's that it's not universal. It doesn't happen to everyone. Mm -hmm. It really only happens to a fairly small percentage of people over age 65. Now, if it's your percentage over age 65, it's dramatic and and it's, it's, it's life-consuming, uh, attention-consuming, energy-consuming, but it's not going to happen to everyone. And that's why when you start to notice changes in someone who's in your life, when you start to notice those changes, the critical piece is to get an evaluation. Mm-hmm. So get um, an evaluation because it might be normal aging. It might be delirium, which is something that can be fixed. You know, it might be related to a medication or a medical condition or depression. 
um, and it might be dementia, but whatever is going on, the sooner we figure out what it is and the sooner we start um, making decisions and putting things in place, the better off we're going to be as we go through this journey together. So, Melanie, you talked about getting an evaluation. Um, I know in speaking to my family and talking to, you know, other family members in my day-to-day work, there's a little bit of confusion with folks on where exactly to go to get evaluation. I've had people say, oh, do I go to the hospital? Do I go to their primary care provider? Who should someone contact to get that evaluation? Another really great question. And the, the timing is one thing. So you want to get that person's evaluation when they're not sick. Mm-hmm. So you don't want it to be part of a hospitalization. Mm-hmm. I mean, they should yes. be evaluating cognition, but that's not when you do that, that preliminary work. So it's when the person is kind of at their normal baseline. So that's the timing piece. The other piece is someone who um, does this a lot. So it might be a neurologist. It might be a psychiatrist. It might be a geriatrician. It might be there are some um, family practice doctors some internal medicine doctors, nurse practitioners, PAs, who do this a lot in their practices. They're on top of it, Mm -hmm. and they do it well. So you want someone who does it often and does it well. Where do you find that person? Um, Reach out to your community. Reach out to Dementia Alliance of North Carolina and ask them, you know, who in my area is really good at this? Who's taking patients um, and, and really does a good job with people living with dementia? They might reach out to support group facilitators or they might reach out to um, family caregiver specialists or someone else if you're not right in the local region, but they have resources to find who is the person who knows what they're doing because it, it's an important diagnosis. We wouldn't tolerate um, a diagnosis of congestive heart failure or a diagnosis of kidney failure without a good evaluation of workup. And we shouldn't tolerate that diagnosis of dementia without a good workup as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. And if folks want to find more about the Dementia Alliance, you can go to DementiaNC.org. DementiaNC.org. She is Melanie Bunn, a nurse and dementia training consultant with Dementia Alliance of North Carolina. And Melanie, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for this opportunity. A quick break and back with more. You're listening to Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. News, talk, traffic. This is Aging Matters. Care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. With your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Hey, if you ever want to find more information about Transitions Life Care, be sure to go online to transitionslifecare.org, transitionslifecare.org. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas and Sam Peterson and we're going to broach a new topic now, and we're going to be talking about, oh boy, uh, long-term care events and how impactful those can be on our loved ones and our lives. And um, you know, 
after we get past the health aspect, there's also the financial aspect as well, which worries so many of us. And we, we do want to explore how that impacts uh, both the Medicare and Medicaid worlds. And to do that, we've brought on a return guest, and that is Beth Donner. She has a background as a nurse and is also a financial advisor specializing in working with seniors. Beth, good afternoon to you. How are you doing today? Doing so well, Jason, and always I most sincerely appreciate the invitation to speak with you. Yes, we're very excited. I know Beth is a longtime friend of the show, and, you know, Jason, I think you nailed it on the head with this topic. Oh, boy. You know, so many families are put in this situation of a long-term care event, and a lot of the times it's an emergency, yes. and it, it is someone lands in the hospital, um, and they hear the words long-term care, mm-hmm. and it's the oh, boy reaction that we get. And so maybe we just start right there, Beth. What triggers a long-term care event? You know, you're in the hospital. You can't go back home. What's next? Well, uh, this certainly is the moment in life that so many families are unprepared for. You know, if we have a loved one that, um, well, quite frankly, we know there's lots of different things that can go wrong with the human body, but, but some of the more devastating medical occurrences might be something like a stroke um, you know, any form of a head injury that needs some, leaves someone cognitively impaired. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's uh, high statistics of um, particularly ladies, unfortunately, falling and breaking a hip. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of things that could happen <laughs> that would lead somebody to not being able to go back home and live live safely anymore and mm-hmm. be able to care for themselves. So, indeed, the majority of seniors are, are unprepared when they are told by the hospital discharge planner or social worker something along the lines of, well, you're not going to be able to go back home and take care of yourself anymore, so we're going to have to make alter, alternate arrangements. And many times that will lead to what we call a, a long-term care event mm. or a long-term care stay at a nursing home or rehab-type facility. So, Beth, you talk about um, that discharging from the hospital. So I know a lot of questions that when I talk with families and patients that we see, they have a lot of questions about, does Medicare cover that long-term care stay at a, a facility? Well, um they will in certain circumstances. And some of those uh, primary circumstances would be, um, most importantly, the, um, the senior, our loved one, would actually need to be in the hospital for a three-day or three-night overnight stay. And this is the status of them being actually admitted. Um, it's quite shocking to the average person when they find out that their loved one has been in a, in a hospital and has been spending there, um, receiving their care for multiple days. Mm-hmm. But technically, on paper, <laughs> they were listed as observation right. patient. And um, you think if you're going to be admitted to the hospital and spending the night there for multiple days, 
that you've been admitted. Mm-hmm. Um, not true. That's not true. <laughs> so if I'm ever working with um, a senior or the, the entire family, always ask. It's like, well, who are you going to ask? Ask anybody <laughs> and yeah. demand, to, demand to get a correct answer. So I don't care if you ask the doctor, you know, one of the nurses, social workers that may be involved. Ask anybody. Is this an admission or do you have me um, just listed this observation? Right. Let me strongly suggest uh, that you want to do everything within your power to be, quote, admitted mm-hmm. to the hospital. That's a great point. And y- y- you mentioned the admission status and these requirements. So if someone's met these requirements and they're discharged to a facility, how long will Medicare paid f- pay for that skilled stay at a facility? Is there a copayment to the patient and the family? Um, what does it look like once you've gotten to the facility and you're in this long-term care event at this facility? Sure. Um, if, again, that it'll be difficult to to review every single requirement in, in this uh, phone interview that mm-hmm. we're having today, but um, for the most part, the most anyone could expect to have paid in regards to recovering from this long-term care event is up to 100 days. Now, the first 20 days is basically covered in, in its entirety by Medicare. So that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So we've got 20 days. Um, after that, from days 21 partic- up to day 100, because uh, now you're in a long-term care nursing-type facility, so you're staying anywhere from 21 to 100 days, there is a daily co-payment. Um, it's in the, I'll just say, a range of approximately $175 a day, and then that's what the you know, nursing home recipient has to pay from their personal monies. But after we hit day 100, so beginning day 101, Um, This is where people get caught off guard. Mm -hmm. It becomes 100% our individual responsibility to pay that bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, Medicare will not pay anymore. Yeah, and I've talked to a lot of families before who have come up to that issue. You know, they've hit their 100 days and they find out, oh, no, Medicare's not paying for this. And maybe they can't pay for the room and board themselves out of pocket. Um, So that's when I know a lot of families will turn to Medicaid. So can you talk a little bit about does Medicaid cover more than Medicare would in that instance? Well, so just to, you know, define and give us an idea Mm -hmm. of when these types of occurrences when we do have to start paying out of our own pocket, so again, this is day 101 mm-hmm. in any type of long-term nursing facility. You know, these nursing home facilities, even in our area around the triangle, um, are going to run somewhere between five to up to twelve thousand dollars per month. Ooh, wow. So, yes. <laughs> so, regardless of you know how many dollars you may have saved between. Um, you know, your 401k at work or any other savings accounts, that brokerage accounts, investments, whatever you've been able to save over your entire uh, working career, you know, when you start taking out um, in today's dollars, maybe 100 to $120,000 a year, 
to pay this portion that Medicare is not going to cover, it may not take that long for people to go through their life savings. So, uh, but in that situation, um, if someone does not make other arrangements to, you know, and this is where I have to bring up, um, there are some ways to work around um, this. Uh, Elder care planning attorneys and um, myself that, again, specializes and some of the products and other areas of knowledge uh, surrounding Medicaid and Medicaid eligibility and qualification. Um, There are some things that can be done, but for the most part, uh, once you qualify for Medicaid, and this is a joint federal and state-funded program to cover these long-term care nursing home costs, and they will indeed cover what we call custodial care, which is non-skilled care, which can be delivered by um, something like a nursing assistant as opposed to a registered nurse. But Medicaid will certainly help with custodial care, the room and board of the nursing home. It will cover the pharmacy and some incidental costs. So it is an extremely comprehensive way to have all the health care costs paid for. Yeah, knowing that... And even when people... Even when people do qualify for Medicaid, um, they do they can still keep their residence, even though they're not going to be living there anymore. They're going to have all their overnight stay at a facility, um, but they they can keep their residence and a few other uh, personal items. Yeah, it's good to know what options are available to you because, uh, as you've sort of explained here in this 10-minute segment, Beth, that uh, there's a lot that goes into this and to knowing when payments start and when payments stop, and that's why it's so important to have professional help. And uh, if you do want to get a hold of Beth, you can go online to diversifiedplanning.com, diversifiedplanning.com. She is Beth Donner, nurse and financial advisor specializing in work with seniors. Beth, thank you so much for your time today. Always a pleasure. Pleasure's on our side as well, Beth. We do have to take a quick break, but we will be back with more. You are listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Good afternoon to you. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas and Sam Peterson, and we've got a friend of the show here on the line, and we always love having our Transitions Life Care brethren, and uh, I I don't know what the female (laughs) equivalent of brethren is, but uh, Mark Philbrick is not that, so I guess I don't need to worry about that. Mark Philbrick, uh, he's been on the show a number of times, and we're going to address a litany of topics with him. Mark, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back. Thank you. 
We are very excited to have you here today, Mark. And we just had a great conversation with Beth about how Medicare and Medicaid work in regards to long-term care. There's a lot of confusion, and we try to clear some of that up. But it's a great segue into our chat with you. So there's all these questions about what is covered. And so let's move into the palliative care and hospice world. What is covered with palliative care and hospice under Medicare and Medicaid benefit? Sure. I think it's probably good to start off with what is palliative care and what is hospice care as defined by the Medicare benefit, because mm-hmm. uh, that can, can be confusing to people. So typically under the Medicare benefit, palliative care, just in general concept, comes from the Latin word pallum, which means to cloak. So palliative care is to cloak people in comfort. And the way it works within the Medicare benefit, as well as most private insurance companies, is it prays for a palliative care physician to do a consultative service with the patients related to their um, need for symptom management. Mm -hmm. And it works just like if they went to their cardiologist or pulmonologist or rheumatologist. It's covered 80% with a 20% copay for consultative services. Now, hospice is for people whose condition has progressed where their physician believes they have six months or less to live if the disease runs its normal course. And in that case, all hospice-related care is provided 100% under the Medicare benefit with no co-pays. And so that coverage would include um, doctor's coverage. It would also, for hospice terminal care, as well as nursing visits, CNA visits, uh, chaplains, social workers, and volunteers to come into the home or wherever the patient resides. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is related to their diagnosis. Wonderful. I think there's a lot of myths and facts about palliative care and hospice. I know that Sam, in your in your role, you hear a lot of them when talking with um, family members yes. and and patients. When I'm out meeting with families and patients and doing informational visits with them, you know, I definitely hear a lot of myths that people hear about hospice. So, Mark, we kind of wanted to play a fun little game with you today uh, <laughs> on myth or fact about hospice. So. We'll go great. ahead and start with, and this is probably the I one. I wish we that, had music to I lead know, in this. Drum great. roll, please. <laughs> <laughs> with the one I hear the most. So myth or fact, going on hospice means I gave up and I only have days left to live. That is a myth. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> um, hospice uh, is not imminent death care. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people in the community, and unfortunately, some in the medical community believe. Mm-hmm that hospice is for the last days of life, whereas it's really to provide care for the last six months of life as people begin their end-of-life journey. Um, And unfortunately, about a third of the patients we admit on hospice are admitted in the last week of life because they're in a crisis Mm. of pain or delirium, um, and it doesn't have to be that way. Right, right. I think that so many people wait till they get to the hospital to have that conversation and make that decision. And I think that, uh, you know, there's much more of the benefit that could be had if you come on to service earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Next one. Comfort care means letting go of my control of my care. That also is a myth. Um, Comfort care, as I mentioned, palliative, the word itself means to cloak someone in comfort. But 
all of the care we provide is in collaboration with the patient and the family. They get to determine uh, what type and what level and details are involved in their care plans. We're required actually to make sure that we're in collaboration with them. So it is not letting go of control. It's actually giving them control. Uh, where they lose control is if they don't have a plan in place. They haven't had these conversations with their patients and their doctors. And unfortunately, we get uh, many people, when they reach this part of life, go into crisis mode. And it allows you to get control over how you're going to be cared for in collaboration with hospice and palliative care providers. Absolutely. It's definitely a collaborative team effort there. So another myth or fact, hospice is expensive. It is not expensive. That is another myth. Uh, in fact, as we talked about, if they are Medicare or private insurance, most likely it's 100% covered for the care that they need to get. Um, and Transitions Life Care, we have been a private not-for-profit entity since 1979, and we never turn anyone away based on ability to pay. So we provide four times the national average percentage-wise of charity care than other um, organizations. So nobody is going to be in a position where they are left with a huge bill under the hospice Medicare benefit. Which is such a wonderful thing mm -hmm. to know for families. And, you know, in talking with families, like you said, a lot of people have no idea that it's a Medicare benefit. Mm -hmm. I know talking to them and all that's covered under hospice, they're like, oh, my gosh, I can get all of these medications mm -hmm. and medical equipment. So it's it's really great to kind of dispel that myth for uh, for patients and families. Absolutely. Yeah. And let me explain, like I mentioned, you get the visits from mm -hmm. these different healthcare professionals who come to your home or your nursing home or assisted living facility. But in addition to that, all the medications yes. that are related to your, your diagnosis are covered 100%, as well as any medical equipment, oxygen, hospital bed, bedside commodes, all of that is also part of this benefit and is 100% covered with no co-pays. Yes, a huge help to families. So you, you keep mentioning this benefit. Once the patient passes, is the benefit over? No. The benefit of hospice is not just for the patient, but for the patient's family and loved ones. So part of the hospice benefit is bereavement and grief support. Medicare provides up to 13 months of grief support to the family once their loved one dies. Wow. So that, for our organization, involves having monthly letters with readings. It also gives them access to free bereavement counseling service from professional bereavement counselors and support goes well beyond the uh, death of the patient. Wow, awesome supports to have in place. So here's a trick question for you. And I hear this <laughs> mm -hmm. a lot from families too. Hospice is a place. It's only at a nursing home or a hospice house. Uh, that is another myth. In fact, hospice is not a place at all. It's a philosophy of care. Now, we happen to have a hospice home. There are three hospice homes in our service area here. Uh, we have a 30-bed hospice facility in Raleigh, about a mile from the PNC Arena and the state fairgrounds. Duke has a uh, facility over near Durham. Uh, Duke Regional Hospital in Chapel Hill. UNC Hospice has one in Pittsburgh. Um, but only 5% of the patient care days we provide are in our hospice home. 
So the vast majority of hospice care is provided to patients in their homes or in a nursing home or assisted living or independent living facility. So it's really a philosophy that we care for patients where they reside to make it best possible care wherever they are. So um, hospice homes are actually an exception, not a rule to comfort care. Awesome. Does a doctor have to refer you to hospice? A family can call and ask for an information visit or an assessment by a hospice organization. Those are provided uh, free of charge. So if the family's not sure, we certainly can send a representative out to identify whether the patient is appropriate and meets criteria. When the hospice admission is actually done, a doctor's order is required. The doctor has to believe that the patient has six months less to live. They sign what's called a certificate of terminal illness, which means they believe the patient is terminally ill, and they write an order for hospice service to begin. Um, We have to have that in place in order for Medicare to reimburse for it. But no, a family or a a friend of a family can uh, contact hospice to get an information visit. That's good to know. We are speaking with Mark Philbrick. He is with Transitions Life Care, and we're going over some facts and myths when it comes to hospice care and palliative care. And we're going to continue our conversation with Mark right after this. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas and Sam Peterson. And our guest on the line is Mark Philbrick with Transitions Life Care. And we're talking all about hospice and palliative care and we're going over some popular myths when it comes to hospice care and uh mary i know we've still got a couple of those to get through yes you were just talking mark about a physician's order needed to start hospice do patients have to stop seeing their physician after they start palliative care or hospice no absolutely not in fact the physician that they're working with the family's physician or their attending physician continues to follow that patient throughout their care and palliative care and hospice. So our services are in addition to the services they're already getting. And our physicians consult with and communicate with their primary doctor throughout their care. So we are additional services um, to that family. I know that's and they're specialists. They're board certified specialists um, in the care of patients dealing with the symptoms and uh, end-of-life issues. Absolutely. I know that's that's kind of comforting for patients to know. I talk with a lot of folks who have been seeing their physician for 25, 30 years, so right. it's nice for them to know that they can still, you know, have that physician on board. So kind of another... Yeah, how I, exp- I just wanted to say how I typically explain this to a family is it's as if you went to your family doctor today and they heard a heart murmur. Mm-hmm. You would not be surprised if you're family doctor said, you know, I want to have a consult with a cardiologist who specializes in heart issues, Mm -hmm. and he will be communicating with me as to what the plan of care is. Absolutely. This is exactly what happens in palliative care and hospice that the physician brings in an additional specialist who really knows how to navigate 
this stage of a person's terminal condition. Absolutely. So another myth or fact I hear a lot, palliative care and hospice is just about treating pain. Patients are going to be given so much morphine that they'll either just sleep all the time or end up becoming an addict. Yeah, that is another myth that we deal with on a regular basis. A couple of thoughts on that. One, physical pain obviously is what's most in the forefront of people's minds. In fact, we served we uh, surveyed hundreds of families, and the number one fear of people facing a terminal condition is that they're going to die in pain. Mm-hmm. So we definitely want to address physical pain. In fact, um, what got me into hospice 30 years in my nursing career is my dad and my brother both developed cancer at the same time. And I was taking care of my father in my home for about three months. And as he progressed through his illness, the last week of life, I noticed as I would turn him, he was grimacing. And I said, Dad, it's really time we begin using some of this pain medicine. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't want to be a junkie. Um, (laughs) And I assured him that we were administering this for him to be comfortable and and how we would uh, make sure that he was taken care of properly. And he said, oh, well, let's go for it. And he, within hours, was just saying how much better he felt. He was totally conscious until the day before he died. And so it's not just about physical pain management. Pain is a total concept in hospice and palliative care. We know that people who are suffering physically also have emotional pain, spiritual pain, social isolation. So all of us uh, in hospice provide those services. We use social workers, chaplains, physicians, and nurses to help people navigate the total scope of what they're dealing with. And we don't administer pain in order uh, pain medications to the point of uh, inducing unconsciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're titrated appropriately for each person's condition. You brought up your your dad and your brother and and their battles with cancer. Um, we hear often yes. palliative care and hospice is just for cancer patients. Is that true? Mm-hmm. No, in fact, only a quarter of people in America are dying of cancer. So it's actually not true that it's uh, for cancer patients only. Now, the reality is that hospice movement, which started in the 70s, primarily was driven by people who had terminal cancer and had no cure. However, um, the majority of patients we care for are non-cancer patients. So these would be patients with heart disease, lung disease, liver or kidney disease, or some of the dementias, uh, such as Alzheimer's. So... uh, the minority of patients that we care for are cancer patients. Well, you won the game, Mark, our Miss and Facts game. Yeah. We'll have a prize coming for you shortly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to go back, actually. You talked a bit about the full benefit of hospice and getting that full benefit of hospice. We waited until the last days of life with my grandmother, who was in our hospice home. Um, but we've changed our mm-hmm. tune. Uh, we've changed our tune as a family about that experience. It was with my grandpa, um, who's actually on palliative care with heart failure and. Um, it's been a great experience. So if the benefit is not expensive or covered, like you talked about, and it's available, why do people wait so long to start palliative care or hospice? I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One, even though death is the most inevitable fact of life, that people want to or tend to be like the three monkeys, hear no Mm -hmm. evil, see no evil, speak no evil. They want to make believe this isn't happening, They want to believe that 
there's going to be a miracle and all of it's going to go away because it's really hard to face our illness and our mortality. So as a result, people try to ignore the signs that the end is coming or that people are getting sicker. And until the crisis, it becomes a crisis, then they reach out for help. And unfortunately, some in the medical community are much the same way. You know, uh, I've been a nurse 45 years and early in my career, when patients or families would ask the doctor, is there anything more that we can do? They would say, no, there really is not. But nowadays, there's almost always something else we can, quote, do, um, especially being in the research triangle park. There's lots of research protocols and mm-hmm. things that they will attempt, but the half of that question is to what end or what benefit. So unfortunately, it's a combination of people not understanding and also avoiding until it becomes a crisis. Absolutely. I know we experienced the same with my own grandmother. She was actually receiving treatments at Johns Hopkins close to where she lived. And, you know, for such a progressive hospital, um, I actually was pleasantly surprised at how early they did recommend hospice for her. But still, as a family, knowing what I know now about hospice, we definitely could have pursued that a lot earlier for her and had better quality of time with her when she was still with us. So um, kind of in that same vein. even I was just going to say, even in my brother's situation, my dad was 89 years old when he had terminal cancer Mm -hmm. and he had obvious symptoms where he was having difficulty whereas my brother was a 55 year old professional golfer in excellent health Mm -hmm. and his cancer overwhelmed him pretty quickly and he believed right up to the end that he was going to beat it and um, so some families are in that situation he had children and a wife and a young life and um, so sometimes it's hard to face realities it is it can be so difficult to make that decision Uh, kind of in that same vein is there anything that we should be doing as a caregiver to help advocate for those services when you know we have decided the time is right for our loved one Uh, I think one of the most useful pieces is now that people are aware that this is a specialty and a benefit and that it is a covered benefit in almost all insurance situations If their physician isn't familiar with palliative care, certainly they can reach out, the family can reach out to um, the palliative care organization or community and request a consult, just like you could request Mm -hmm. a consult from any other specialist. The other thing I would recommend, um, if you're not familiar with where to call or go, there is a national website, nhpco.org, which is a national hospice and palliative care organization nhpco.org. If you go to that website, they have a button on find a provider. You can type in your city or your zip code, and it will give you a list of all the local providers of hospice and palliative care in your community. That's very helpful. I know we want to touch on one last quick thing. What are some signs or symptoms that caregivers should look for when considering is, are are we at the right time now Mm -hmm. to talk about hospice or palliative care? Yes, um, and it does vary from illness to illness. Um, some of the most common ones we see is for people with congestive heart failure or COPD, emphysema, where their mobility becomes limited, difficulty breathing, problems with fatigue. As they begin to see the common signs of people declining, that would be an important one. Uh, people facing cancer who have a poor prognosis and that their symptoms begin to uh, be out of control. Either their pain increases, they have increased nausea, vomiting, um, difficulty eating, 
Uh, people with liver failure or kidney failure, where they begin to see their quality of life declining. Um, and people with dementia, if they see a loved one who's at the point where they're having difficulty recognizing their family members, um, having difficulty feeding or clothing themselves, those are trigger signs that they ought to reach out and get some help. That's great stuff, Mark. And uh, you, you technically are the winner of hospice fact or fiction today, <laughs> but uh, I think uh, really all of us have won by gaining from your insight today. So Mark Philbrick with Transitions Life Care, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. You're certainly welcome. That, again, is Mark Philbrick with Transitions Life Care. I want to thank our other guests today, Beth Donner and Melanie Bunn, for coming on with us. And I can't forget to thank our hosts, Mary Lucas and Sam Peterson, as always, for helping to steer the ship today. On uh, behalf of Transitions Life Care, I am Jason Kong, thanking you for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.